Welcome to another edition of The Collector Show. I'm Harold Nickel. Thank you for tuning in to our program here on Web Talk Radio. Two excellent guests and two really interesting topics on the program this week. We've got a segment on Major Matt Mason, who some of you may remember from the late 1960s, a very popular, albeit very short-lived, space exploration toy that was developed by Mattel to counter... G.I. Joe. The question about this particular collectible is why it isn't more popular and what happened to it, why it was so short-lived. We're going to talk all about Major Matt Mason in one of our interview segments. And then in another interview segment, we're going to talk about comic book art. Now, we have talked about comic book collecting way back when the show first started. And I don't think comic book collecting is anything new for the people who listen to this program or who collect in general, but collecting comic book art is a little bit different twist on the hobby. Collecting the actual drawings that were made by the artists who either pen and draw comic books or who ink them in later. What happens to those pieces after they're printed We're going to talk about that in another interview segment. We're going to cut short the news segment this week because of the length of those two interview segments. But I did want to share one thing with you, and I did have a posting about this on my blog at thecollectorsshow.com. I've been doing public relations work my entire career, and last week I had a situation where I wanted to do a segment on the program about the collectible figures for the WWE that were just introduced by Mattel. And it's a licensing agreement that Mattel has with World Wrestling Entertainment to reproduce the likenesses of wrestlers and the names that WWE owns as a promotion for WWE. It's an instant collectible. It will be hugely popular in the wrestling community. I guess if there is such a thing. People who follow wrestling, people like me, and people who collect these kinds of figures. So I went onto the Mattel website to try to get in touch with them because I wanted to have somebody come on the program and talk about these figures. Now, when you're in the public relations business like I am, one of the things that you have to be able to do is respond to members of the media. And in this instance, being the host of The Collector Show, I am a member of the media. So instead of getting to talk with somebody from the company about these new figures... And instead of finding background information and photos I could reproduce on the website, what I got back was an email that wanted me to list my questions out in advance and that then they would make a decision about responding to my inquiry, which I thought was odd because as somebody who represents a big company for the media, my bread and butter is having... Reporters contact me because they want to write about what I have to offer or report about what I have to offer. I've never sent out a questionnaire. I frankly don't know any other public relations people that would do that. And the thing about this from a PR point of view is the nice people at Mattel have missed an opportunity to promote their WWE characters over our program, and who knows how many other reporters with much bigger audiences than what this show has, have had similar experiences. So I'm just a little befuddled by that response to a member of the media from people who have a really cool new toy to offer to the collectible community. I don't get it. 
So I blogged about it this week. You can read my blog at thecollectorshow.com, which I urge you to visit because there's lots of other things on there that we don't have the chance to get into more on the program. I'll post the whole news stories that we go through, links to the guests on the program, and lots of links to past shows. Another thing about past shows, they don't have all of them, but they have a nice collection of past shows on iTunes. And those of you who are familiar with uh, iTunes know that you can go and subscribe to The Collector Show. You will automatically get every show that's posted to iTunes, and it's free. So check out The Collector Show on iTunes. Check out The Collector's Show website. And of course, as always, be sure to come back to Web Talk Radio and listen to more of The Collector's Show. Coming up next, our first of two interview segments here on Web Talk Radio. I'm Harold Nickel. Welcome to another edition of The Collector's Show. I'm Well, you know, on The Collector's Show before, we've talked about collecting comic books and talked about the things that make up a good comic book collection. But uh, I guess a hobby within the comic book hobby is the collecting of the art, the original art, that makes up the comic book or the graphic novel. And we are very pleased this week to be joined by a very well-known collector of comic book art, Mr. Joel Mangrum. And Joel, welcome to The Collector Show. Hi, Harold. Thanks for having me. Now, Joel, let's talk first of all about comic book art and how it first became a collectible. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, sure. Um, well, before we can get into that, you kind of have to know a little bit of the history of comics, which is up until the 1960s or the 1970s, for the most part, uh, comic book companies such as Marvel, DC, EC, um, Golden Key, they considered the artwork to be theirs. Uh-huh. Um, as far as they were concerned, the artist was uh, on a per-hire basis. So <clears throat> after the artist would submit the artwork and after they shot it uh, to make the plates to do the printing, the companies would keep them. The, ar- the artist and the inker never got them back. So in that case, what would end up happening is there are tales of people going into these places, opening up uh, closets, and just seeing stacks of original art. And what would end up happening is as they were cleaning out, they would just take all this original art and throw it away. How terrible. Or they would give it, oh, yeah, or they would give it away to uh, people who wrote letters uh, in their letters columns or to people who came by. They would just give away this art. So the majority of the art before the 1960s and the early 70s it's very hard to find um, <clears throat> before Marvel came in and started instituting um, where they would get their art back. Now, when you say so, give, give the art back, give it back to the, to the person who wrote a comic book? or No, the, the writer really doesn't get it back. What generally happens is um, the artwork is produced on a 12 by 18 page, 11 by 17. It's, it's always done far larger than what the actual comic book is. That mm-hmm. way they can do a lot of detail. So the artist comes in, draws it all in pencil, and then you, they give it away to an inker who goes in with ink, adds the shading, adds in some details, or if some of the lighting is incorrect, they'll change the lighting. Uh, a hand is way bigger than what it needs to be. They'll race the hand and go back in, and they add a lot of depth. So when the artwork comes back, 
uh, generally they do a 55-45 or 50-50 split uh, between the uh, between the artist and the inker. Both of them will get a little bit of the art. At that point, they can do with it what they want. And that seems a lot like a lot better idea than just throwing it away, which gives me chills. Yeah, I mean that, that breaks your heart to hear what hear what they were doing. But again, as far as they were concerned, it was theirs, and there was no intrinsic value in the art at the time. It was comic books were originally designed as a giveaway. Um, again, printed on very cheap newspaper stock. Sure. Uh, kids bought them, rolled them up, traded them. So the comics had no intrinsic value at the time. And so, as far as they were concerned, the art had no value whatsoever because it was for kitty stuff. Right. So there wasn't any um, view to the future of seeing that these things were anything other than just a vehicle as a giveaway. They weren't thought of as art the way we think about art today. That's what I'm hearing. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so what would, what ended up happening is in the 1970s, um, as some of this art was coming back, um, you would have places like, for example, the, example, the San Diego Comic-Con, which is the largest North American um, comic book convention. It's held every, I think, in July and August, just depends upon the year. Um, so you would go to conventions, and they, you would have um, the artists themselves or sometimes representatives. That's where you could buy the art. Um, so it really started there, or a lot of times you could contact the, um, the agent for the artist, uh, and you could buy it directly from the uh, directly from the artist himself. But for the most part, the average person couldn't get in touch with it. And then in the 1980s, um, you would find a lot of places like Graphic Collectibles and some of these other companies would send out. Really, they would print up these little pamphlets, these little mailers mm-hmm. that they would mail out to people on their um, on their collection list. They would mail these out once a month with their newest things. So the really smart people, what they would do is they would ask to have those expressed to them. That way they would get them a day or two before everybody else had got them in the mail, and then they could call up and buy the art. Well, <laughs> That's clever. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's very clever. But what would, what ended up happening is now with, the, uh, with eBay coming on and the Internet, now pretty much anybody, whether you're in the middle of Wyoming or in downtown Miami, you can get on the Internet and you can see a lot of great artwork for sale. And there are a lot of websites. Uh, like I said, eBay is a good one. Um, <clears throat> there are other websites like ComicArtFans.com, which isn't so much a for sale site, but what it is is it's one of the largest gatherings uh, of comic art collectors. I think when I talked to the guy uh, a couple weeks ago, he had over 500,000 pieces. It's not his collection, but for example, my collection is on there. Um, his collection is on there. People put their uh, pieces up there so everybody can look at them, enjoy them. And a lot of these you would never see otherwise unless, you know, because these people keep it locked up. They don't ever leave their house because they're very valuable now. So this is a forum where people can go in and just admire the art, not necessarily buy it. Exactly, but you can buy it through it because they do have the contact information. And I have bought several pieces uh, off the website, and I have had a lot of people approach me about buying some of my pieces. Now, one of the... It, is, it, it does have kind of a... Uh, uh, trading forum kind of thing as well. Okay. Um, if I could just ask you, Joel, to keep stay a little closer to the phone, if you don't mind. Oh, sorry about that. Um, the other thing, though, I wanted to comment about is, and I was thinking about it getting ready um, for the interview, that I think about some works of art like an artist in a lifetime might do, I don't know, a hundred different pieces that he or she had for sale or maybe even a thousand in terms of the amount of drawings or the number of drawings in comic book art there must be in the hundreds of thousands because every panel 
has to be drawn, inked in, etc. Oh, yeah. Well, you figure the average comic book has roughly 22 pages per month. Okay. So you get an artist that comes in, he's got a 10-issue run. Uh, you know, you're talking about 220 pages that this artist has done just for just in 10 months. So every, about once a day, they have to produce a full page of art. That sounds like a lot. <laughs> it is. It is. That's why... Um, that's why if you look at the uh, distribution date on comic books, you'll see that it generally goes out two to three months um, in advance. So right. So you'll get an October book. If the ones that you get in October actually say January and so on and so forth. Uh, so every so every 30 days, they have to produce almost a page a day. Okay. So it seems like that the artists themselves, if they get these drawings back from the uh, publishing companies, that it would be another way for them to monetize that work is there a way on on the sites that you've mentioned that we get directly in touch with the artists or are there other ways to get our hands on on this art oh sure um a lot of artists uh for example you've got alex ross um who does very photorealistic his is all painted he uses for example if you see uh, when he draws spider-man you see every wrinkle in his costume it looks like he's wearing fabric it's as close to realism as you can get in comic books right. he has a dealer he gives his stuff all directly to a dealer who then goes out and you have to buy directly to the dealer but there are other artists like brent anderson and uh, he's the one that pops to mind you can go to his website buy them directly from the artist himself um bill sinkevich um so it just really depends upon the artist and how popular they are at the time i would imagine that the spider-man art is incredibly popular with the three motion pictures and i'm hearing conversation about a fourth spider-man movie coming out that probably drives the prices up and to my mind would keep art like that out of the hands of of the average person is that a fair assessment it is it is but there there are a lot of factors it's it's like with any collectible there are a lot of factors uh as to what you're going to pay for example how old is the art um the first 32 issues of the amazing spider-man were done by a gentleman named steve ditko Mm -hmm. now spider-man came out in 1962 and um, then he was launched into his own title uh, about eight months after that. Well, the thing with Steve Ditko is that he has, sees no intrinsic value in his art. The man is in his 80s. But, um, so there's very little Steve Ditko uh, Spider-Man art out there. Um, he cuts up his own art. He uses it as backing board for other stuff. So if you can get your hands on a good Steve Ditko piece of Spider-Man art, you're going to pay a lot of money. And you can pay... Um, Seventy, eighty thousand dollars for a for one page, a good splash page of Spider-Man taking on uh, Doctor Octopus, um, you know, the Lizard, somebody like that. Now, you get some of the newer stuff that comes out uh, by an artist that's not as well known. Um, you know, you can pay fifty, sixty dollars a page, but it also depends upon what part you're wanting to buy, and there is a hierarchy in what you want to buy. For example, the covers is, generally are the most sought after, the most valuable. That's what you want, um, mainly because in comic books, what you see on the cover is what gets a lot of people to buy it. So they're very splashy, very dynamic, um, full full body pictures of the characters themselves. Right. Um, so that's what collectors want, and that you, that's what you're going to pay the premium. Then the step down from that is going to be the splash page. If you ever open up a comic book, if you remember being a child. Uh, the first page was generally something, oh my God, what's going on with what's going on with Spider-Man? How's he going to get out of this? Or, And again, it was intended to draw the reader in. So the splash page is 
um, slightly below the covers in terms of what you want. Then you've got action pages. If Spider-Man is really doing something, he's just going hammer and tongs um, at Dr. Octopus or Electro or you know, the Green Goblin, if they're just duking it out, you want that. And then the last part you get are all the other pages. Um, Peter Parker walking in and talking to J. John Jameson, um, you know, talking to Aunt May. Again, you know, a Steve Ditko page with that is still going to go for a lot of money, but it's not going to bring near the amount that a splash page will. Now, does Steve Ditko, does he still draw? Um, you know, it's hard to say. He won't do interviews with people. Um, he won't talk to anybody. Uh, he hasn't done an interview. The last interview the guy did was, I think, in 1989. Don't quote me on that. And it was a little two-page uh, write-up that he did. But he hasn't done an interview since the 70s, really sat down with somebody. So, so he, he really has become the J.D. Salinger of, uh, of comic books. Very reclusive-sounding guy. Maybe the thing to do for collectors is, since you said he um, he throws his art away, maybe just stake out his garbage can and... <laughs> Well, that's if you can find him. We know he's, um, one guy was able to track him down for a TV show in Britain, um, but he's really been the only guy. We know he's in New York City somewhere, but he just won't talk to anybody. If you're just tuning in, it's The Collector Show with Harold Nickel, and we're talking with Joel Mangrum about collecting comic book art today. Now, we've talked a lot about the amount of art, the types of art, and collecting, but there's different genres of comic books and therefore, there are different genres. Sorry, genres of art beyond the superheroes, like what we've been talking about. What are some of the more popular genres of comic book and comic book drawings? Well, I mean, superheroes really, to this day, um, really to this day, uh, haven't released their hold on the public. Um, still, ninety percent of everything out there is superhero related. Um, so that's going to be the majority of what you find. But what you've got now is a lot of smaller publishers are putting out horror comics. You've got stuff like The Walking Dead, Marvel Zombies. You've got horror comics. You've got romance comics for the younger ladies. You've got uh, uh, independent stuff like um, the, the Adventures of Barry Ween, which is about a young, intelligent boy, uh, about six years old, with an IQ of 350. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it, it really is a... It's, it's a very twisted. It's like Calvin and Hobbes meet South Park. <laughs> I like it already. <laughs> oh, it, it, it is a laugh. If you don't laugh at least twice an, uh, twice an issue, uh, you have no sense of humor. But there are a lot of stuff uh, like that that's more creator-owned, uh, smaller press. Krogan's Vengeance, Krogan's, uh, Krogan's March, I think. So there are a lot of smaller um, fringes, but really if you're going to get outside the superhero, you're not going to be good talking to about Marvel or DC, which are the two big powerhouses, or really even Image or Dark Horse, which are the next two biggest publishers. You're going to be going to the smaller publishers like IDW, Oni, um, Vertigo. Okay. So I remember when I was growing up, vaguely remember this, Civil War comics. Are those still around? So, um, no. No, what happened was in the 1950s, uh, this crackpot named Frederick Wortham wrote a book called The Seduction of the Innocent. Right. Um, which basically, he made a lot of unsubstantiated claims saying that Batman and Robin were homosexuals and he would take panels uh, out of books, out of context, and show them uh, around. And then you had the EC horror comics um, that, you know, really had no redeeming value if you want to look at it, people getting murdered and killed and getting away with it. So when he came out with this book, um, the Senate had had hearings 
um, on that, and basically they told the comic book industry, if you don't clean yourself up, we're going to do it for you. And so they did what was called the Comic Code Authority, which was a self-regulating body within the comics industry. And they had a um, they had a series of, th of things that you couldn't do. For example, you couldn't show drugs. You couldn't show the undead. Um, you couldn't show vampirism, Frankenstein. You couldn't have the word crime or horror in your title. You couldn't use too much of the color red, I think. Um, you couldn't show you know, people killing and getting away with it. Good always had to trump bad. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, which ran out a lot of like the Civil War comics, the horror comics, the crime comics. Um, so really what you ended up with, uh, instead of Batman becoming a creature of the night, which is what he originally was, he right. killed bad guys. Then you ended up with him smiling and, you know, rah-rah for the team, working with uh, working with the police, becoming an unofficial agent, and, uh, Superman doing all the stupid stuff he did instead of becoming a New Deal reformer, which is what he originally was in the 19th. 30, so really they neutered the comics. And right. it's only been in the last nine years. Marvel, I think in the year 2001, 2002, said, we're not going to submit to the Comic Code Authority anymore. We don't have to. We've got our own internal. And that's been done away with. So the only thing really that you could get by with were cutesy, uh, cutesy animal books. Casper. Uh, Casper the Friendly yep. Ghost. Uh, hot stuff. Um, or Archie's. Licensed, Archie's. Exactly. Archie came out in 1941, uh, Pep Comic number one, I think. But um, you ended up with stuff like that, and or they would like uh, Jerry Lewis had a long series of comic books, Bonanza, Gunsmoke. They would license these properties, mm -hmm. um, or like I said, they, they, it pretty much transformed everything. So if it involved guns or gunplay or, or death, you really couldn't do it. Well, and and people, I don't think. Uh well, maybe people who were alive in the 50s, I wasn't, but I certainly read about the big scare that there was around comic books and it's ruining society and it's going to, this comics were going to ruin young people and there was a lot of hysteria around comic books well, in those days. See, here's, here's what it was. Uh, Frederick Wortham did a lot of crackpot science. He worked with children who were um, at risk kids in, uh, kids in uh, uh, homes or, you know, juvenile delinquents. So when he would interview these people, he would ask these children, he would ask them, what did you read? And, of course, being children, they all said comic books. Right. So putting one and one together and getting 11, he goes, <laughs> ah, they all read comic books. That's what's causing this, this juvenile delinquency. Right. So you've got stuff, which he coined the phrase, for example, the Superman complex, which is, you know, belief in, uh, you know, he believed that by watching, by reading Superman, kids were going to be putting on capes and jumping off the top uh, of their house. Okay. He, he was right because I did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you didn't walk around trying to solve crime or, you know, that kind of thing. So he was totally off base in a lot of instances. Do, do comics influence kids? Sure. I mean, you know, who hasn't put on a cape and pretended like they were Superman and ran around the house? But as far as, you know, promoting homosexuality, you know, was with Batman and Robin, and which is why, for example, in the uh, Batman uh, TV show in the 1960s, they had Sweet Aunt Harriet. Oh, right. Who had never been in the comics before. Right. So you, can't, you can't have two grown men living together with their male butler without Sweet Aunt Harriet. Right. Which is why she was introduced. In, in the, and then eventually she made it into the comics. Uh, DC followed suit after that. Well, and then there was Batgirl, which... Um and then you had Batgirl, who was Commissioner Gordon's daughter. Yeah. And so, yeah, it really ended up being a watered-down 
it, it really was watered down for a lot of years. So, getting back to the art, I mm-hmm. mean, and I'm and I'm glad we got onto that because that's a, a very uh, much discussed topic in social sciences are the '50s and the hysteria around comic books. But getting back to the collecting of the art, let's just say for the people who listen to this program who might want to get interested in collecting art, where is a good place to start? Well, your your best place to start is really just go online and start looking for comic book conventions. Okay. Because there are other art other than published art. Now, what we had discussed previously is published art. Um, you know, and the good part about that is you figure an average comic book presents 50 to 60,000. They, they do 50 to 60,000 copies a month. So, in theory, 50 to 60,000 people can have Spider-Man 650, whatever. Right. But there's only one page of original art. You, the only person in the world who can have that page. 50,000 people can have the comic, you've got the art. Oh, brilliant. That's what, that's what makes it so valuable. But if you can't afford that kind of thing, um, then what you can do is you can go to commissions and sketches. Um, and this is what I'm saying. You can pretty much any small comic convention you go to of any size is going to have somebody selling art. You mm-hmm. can find it for relatively cheap. Um, versus, let's say, the San Diego Comic Con, where you're going to have, you know, they're going to charge several thousand dollars for a table, which means they have to charge a lot more for their art. You go to a small convention, let's say, in Memphis or St. Louis or whatever, you know, only. 200 booths or 200 tables, you know, they're only going to charge a couple hundred bucks. So they can do it for less. But at these conventions, there are a lot of local artists who will do either commissions or sketches. Now, sketches are just real quick things, five, ten minutes maximum. You know, uh, Spider-Man's head, not a lot of detail. Commissions are a lot of what I do now. And commissions can be just as profitable, um, really, for investors, if that's what you're into, uh, as published art. Yeah, I was just going to say. I was just going to say. Give me an example. That sounds intriguing. All right. I'll, I'll give you the. I'll give you the best example out there. Um, now, commissions, uh, like I said, is you go to the guy, or you can contact them through their website. And this is what I want to see. I want to see Spider-Man fighting Superman, and the guy will give you a price. All right. Adam Hughes is a contemporary comic artist, and he is well known for drawing women. He draws a very beautiful woman. Uh, very seductive, very busty. It, it's what he's best known for. You go to a show where he's at. All right. He is so popular that you have to get there, like right as the door opens. You have to put your name into a lottery. He draws what he wants out of the lottery, and then and you tell him what it is that you want. If he doesn't want to draw it, I'm sorry, he's just not going to draw what you want. Huh. So you you have to jump through a lot of hoops for him. Now, you put your name in. He draws it. Yeah, absolutely. I want to draw um, Wonder Woman doing whatever. Great. I'm going to draw it for you. Four hundred dollars. So he'll draw out probably on eleven by seventeen. I don't know what size he does, Um, but he'll draw it out for you. And he does a lot of detail in his art. Now, four hundred dollars. Because he is so picky and because he is so careful in what he does, if you were to take that to eBay, you could sell it for eight hundred to a thousand dollars. Turn it just like that. Get out. I'm not kidding. You, if you go on eBay, if you can find an Adam Hughes piece, because most people don't want to part with him because he is that good. And because it's that, you have to go through so many hoops to get his stuff. You can turn it for $1,200. I've seen it. And that's what, and that's why he charges so much. Again, even at $400, you're still getting a bargain. Yeah, yeah. And 
uh, even as little as three years ago, he was doing it for $200. People were still flipping them for $1,000. Incredible. Just incredible. So if I wanted a picture of me, um, you know, just beating the snot out of Superman, mm-hmm. if Mr. Hughes agreed to that, I could I could have that. If, he, if that's what he felt like drawing that day. Oh, man. Right. How cool is that? We're going to run out of time. So before we do that, Joel, um, I know that you also have a radio program that's devoted to the topic of comic art collecting. Tell us how we can hear you. Sure. Um, we are, I'm a member of, it's called the dollarbin.net. Um, we cover art collecting, original art, We, but we expand out beyond that to pretty much anything. Um, we've got five guys, one girl. We're always rotating in and out, so there's somebody new every week. Uh, we do interviews with uh, people like uh, Adam Hughes, uh, writers, artists. We do Sometimes it's just a top five list of dream projects or what we read that week. Um, but lately we've been focusing a little bit more in on original art. So we pretty much, if it's comic book related, we're going to get around to it at some point. That's and we neat. we to come out once a week. But you can find us on iTunes. Uh, so for the dollar bin. Okay. Um, so we, we, ha- we do try to get it out once a week. And you have a website also, right? Uh, the dollarbin.net. Um, if you can't find us on iTunes, uh, just type in dollarbin.net or the dollarbin. You can do a Google search. And pretty much every episode, we're up to episode, we just released 150 episodes. Wow. So um, they're all on there um, going back about three, three and a half years. Now, um, are you going to be going to the Comic Con show in San Diego? You know, I'm in Bakersfield. Oh, well, then uh, probably. So San Diego is like a five-hour drive. Um, abs- but the problem is, is that uh, Comic Con right now, all the four-day passes are sold out. They're pretty much sold out a month after the show ends. Jeez. Uh, last year, so you have to buy a one-day pass, and all their Friday and Saturday one-day passes are sold out. So you have to either have to go Thursday or Sunday. It sells out fast. Yeah. So, I w- and I don't have my tickets yet. So if I can get a ticket, I'm probably going to go. It's just trying to trying to get a ticket. The reason I ask, there's another Comic-Con in Chicago that this summer that I'm going to try to go to, and I wondered if they were related, if it was the same bunch. No, uh, the one you're talking about, I think, is probably Wizard World Chicago. I, th- I guess. I thought it was Comic-Con. It used, co- it used to be called the Chicago Comic-Con, um, but Garib Seamus, this guy who owns the magazine Wizard, uh, has gone in and bought up a lot of local conventions like that. Chicago at one time was the second largest. Okay. Um, but now you've got the Big Apple Con and Heroes and Charlotte. But he's gone in and he's bought up. So you get, um, there's a Wizard World LA show. There's a Wizard World Atlanta, Wizard World Chicago, New York, Dallas, Miami. So he's bought up a lot of these local shows and thrown the, the name Wizard in front of it. But if you get a chance to go, I went there 15 years ago, and that's actually how I got started in collecting uh, original comic art. I was at that show. Okay. Well, that's that's also good for us to know if you can go to one of these Local shows like what Joel described for us, the big ones in San Diego, New York, Chicago, another good place to meet the artists, start collecting comic art. And Joel Mangrum of Dollar Ben, thanks for being on the Collector Show this week. And uh, let me know when you have something to announce, and we'll uh, we'll get it on this program as well. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity, Harold. Thank you, my friend. Yes, thank you. And stay tuned for more of the Collector Show coming up next. I'm Harold Nickel on Web Talk Radio. Well, you know, most Americans enjoy a good conspiracy. 
I certainly do. There are plenty of conspiracy theories out there, plenty of conspirational things you can read about. And my next guest, John Micklig, and I both wonder the same thing. Where are the flying cars? And how come there are no vacation homes on the moon like we were all promised when we were growing up in the 60s? John has another conspiracy theory with respect to another collectible item, Major Matt Mason. Where did he go? And how is it that the disappearance of that popular toy coincides with our not going back to the moon? And John, welcome to The Collector Show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Now, all kidding aside, Major Matt Mason was one of my favorite toys growing up as a kid. And the thing that I wanted us to talk about today was his role in popular culture and his maybe lack of popularity as a collectible. What do you think about both of those? Well, it's my feeling that he'll definitely come back. Um, because of the uniqueness of the toy, we're, we're talking about a period of time where G.I. Joe was what an action figure was all about, a 12-inch figure that was articulated, jointed. Um, here was a figure where they came up with that sort of rubber articulation with a wire inside to it. But the reason it was so interesting was because it's a man in a spacesuit right. with a helmet that snaps on and off, form followed function so well that you didn't feel like you were just playing with a bendy. Right. You felt like you were playing with an astronaut. Of course, he would he would have puffy limbs and accordion joints. That's that's what makes sense in an astronaut. I remember the bendy toy, the Gumby toys, and the pokey toys had wires in them, and they were bendable, but the wires would always end up poking out of them, and you'd have to take the wires out so you didn't you know, every mother's fear, put your eye out. But the Mason... Well, no, sorry, go ahead. These were different days when uh, when we ventured into hazardous stuff all the time. I mean, we were, as kids, I'm, I'm 45 years old, so in the, in the 60s, the toys we got had mercury in them half the time. We used to play with mercury. <laughs> that, that explains the fact that I can't do math very well. <laughs> well, maybe that, you know, come to think of it, maybe that's me too. We played with Mercury, and there was that big shelf in the back of the car, and you'd ride in that. And, oh, sure, uh, that, was your, that was your safety seat. Yeah, and, uh, you know, your parents would be thrown under the jail these days for things <laughs> like that. But, yeah, you're right. He was, uh, and when we say fully articulated, we mean he would he could move around. And the other thing that was neat about him was on his helmet, the visor would move up and down. The sure, and one of the one of the reasons that um, Matt Mason turned out looking as well as he did, and all of his accessories being as as faithful to what what designs at the time uh, were all about, was the fact that at Mattel you had a lot of basically rocket scientists working there. Um, Jack Ryan, who ran all the research and development over at Mattel and, and was basically responsible for Barbie, was a, a very interesting, interesting person. But his uh, his job before Mattel was at Raytheon, and that's that's rocket science. He's right. The guys who helped us get to the moon. So when he would hire people for Mattel to to figure out how to make a better Barbie or how to make a skipper that could go through puberty when you twisted her arm. He would hire him right from the, uh, from the the rocket science sector of of, uh, of of the employment sphere. So you would have people who one day were working on the Voyager program, or right. one day they were deciding what thickness the the bell for the rocket should be on the lunar lander. And the next day, they're over at Mattel and they're and they're designing toys. And they weren't designing space toys; they were designing Barbie and and all those sorts of things. So when the opportunity came up 
to do Mattel's Man in Space. These are men who didn't even have to go uh, and, and find research. They came right out of, of that program. So what you see in, in, the, in the major Matt Mason um, product line is very close to what we thought it would take to get to the moon at, at that point in time. We're talking about mid and late 60s. And that was the thing that was so interesting on your website and in the article you had written about Major Matt Mason was that so many of the early conceptual drawings that we saw in National Geographic and Life magazine back in the 1960s evolved into the toy, whereas maybe they didn't they didn't make it to the moon, but they sure were reminiscent of those drawings, and, and that was why. It was the same group of guys that worked on the early programs ended up working at Mattel. Well, one can almost can almost say that Major Matt Mason was part of the the American propaganda machine to get us to the moon or to get us out to space because that really was the frontier that had to be explored. We, for political reasons, we had to beat the Soviet Union into space. Absolutely. And we're talking about a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars that had to be spent not on uh, poverty programs, not on um, flashy new cars, not on um, bigger homes or, or food, but for this abstract idea of sending a spacecraft to the moon, and not only a spacecraft, but a person in it. And that's, a, that's something that, um, that people take for granted, that we sent a man to the moon and we brought those men back. That wasn't always the idea. It, it used to be, well, we could send a, a machine there, we could pick up some rocks, the robot comes back, we've been to the moon. Right. But it was through these different, um, different pop culture items the Collier's magazines in um, early 1950s where Werner von Braun wrote articles about how we're going to get to space and, and the way we're going to do it. And that's where a lot of these designs came from, the Life magazine stories. And then you have Major Matt Mason where we're saying this is what we're going to do and this is what you're going to be doing 20 years from now. I mean, if you put yourself back on Christmas Day, 1969, 1970, and you're opening up your Major Matt Mason and think 2010. Right. 2010, well, I'm on the moon. Of course I'm on the moon. My family's there. I probably bring my kids and, and my wife, and it's a resort, or maybe I'm working there. We had no doubt that's where we were going. Sure, bases were going to be there. We'd already have been to Mars and back. I, I remember that very, very well, and having uh, exactly, well, that experience on Christmas morning, that's when I got my Major Matt Mason, and maybe not thinking that far ahead, but I couldn't imagine a future where all we had was just the space shuttle. I say all that we have, but that we hadn't explored more, and there weren't permanent outposts on the moon and on and on Mars. Well, what what Major Matt Mason represents, and this is sort of the theme of, of a book I'm researching right now, is America's um, build up to the idea that it's a good idea to go into space and go to the moon. We we had to convince. The, the nation at large that this huge expenditure was worth it. Right. And it became part of that. We're, at Mattel, the people who were working there and doing these designs, they certainly were convinced because they uh, gained a lot of their previous livelihood from creating the rockets and the missiles and, and everything that uh, we needed in order to get into space. So the major Matt Mason idea at the very beginning was very reality-based. These were men outfitted to go to space. And everything that you saw in, in the accessory lines were things that, at that point, really would have made sense. Now, where things diverged was when we were racing with the Soviets, 
we suddenly can't build a, um, a space station orbiting Earth where we will assemble the rocket that will then go to the moon and then we'll, we'll launch from the moon and come back. We had to do it faster. We had to do it in a disposable manner, and that's where you get your staged uh, missiles and everything like that. Right. And because we did it so fast, and because we did it, we had to beat that 1970 deadline, we had to beat the Soviets, everything that we used, we used up. And right now, if you wanted to go to the moon, it would take you another 10 years to, to get the material and, and the money and everything together to do it. We're that far away. We're farther away from the moon right now than we were in, in 1972 or 1970, which is a strange thing to think. In the year 2010, we have a, a much less uh, much less of an opportunity to get there than we did 30 years ago. It is an odd thing, and it is interesting, too, that because until I uh, read your website, didn't realize that the people who designed the toy had been themselves rocket scientists. And that was another fun thing about Major Matt Mason was that it wasn't far out aliens or things that we couldn't do. It was, this guy's an explorer and he's going to go explore the moon in vehicles that made a lot of sense. And that's that's where the conspiracy comes in. Okay. Uh, it's a stretch, and I needed a stretch to make an interesting article. In fact, the very first article I ever wrote professionally was about Major Matt Mason. And the, the thing that that struck me about Major Matt Mason is for such a, a large product line where you had coloring books, you had the big little books, you had um, sticker books, anything you can imagine was, was, was attached to the line. Puzzles, all that stuff. And for three or four years, it's this huge product line. And of course, it coincides with NASA being very popular and right. constant missions. And suddenly, poof, it's, it's gone. And not only was it gone, my Matt Masons were gone. And my parents didn't throw away my toys. So it made me wonder, were there guys in dark suits traveling all over the country trying to scoop up these realistic depictions of a real possibility in outer space in order to replace those by something like, for instance, Star Trek, where we're all going to wear these cool velour shirts and we're going to be on, on the bridge in a big lazy boy and, and that's what space is all about. In other words, a, a completely non-practical fantasy-type space thing. And, and it effectively kept us off the moon. There so, it, no, sorry, go ahead. If you want, if you want a conspiracy, you can build a conspiracy using, using Matt Mason. Well, and I have a vision of men in black visiting all of our homes, confiscating our major Matt Mason. But there is a l big population of Americans who think we never actually went to the moon, that it was just something on a soundstage. <laughs> and there's another large percentage of Americans who think that once we were there, some superior intelligence told us not to go back, and that's the reason, not only that we haven't been there since 1972, but that President Obama recently decided, uh, you know what, we're not going to go back to the moon. We'll focus on global warming and, and uh, maybe on going to Mars. Well, Buzz Aldrin who was the, uh, the second man on the moon. Right. Um, whenever you see a picture of a man on the moon, it's usually Buzz because um, Neil was taking all the pictures and Buzz didn't take many pictures of Neil on the moon. But he's a, a very, very active proponent of the space program, bringing back the, the sort of manned missions that we used, to, we used to have. But when asked about this, he said, I agree, we've been there, done that. He wants to go to Mars. And I, 
suppose Major Matt Mason, if he was if he was a real person, he was around now, he probably still wouldn't have the flat top that he had back then. He would say the same thing. He would say, "Well, we've been there. You know, once you once you've landed there, what's going to change now, other than the fact that you can send back some really great high definition video of the whole thing? Right? Why spend all the money now?" The, the money thing is another interesting aspect of this. We live in a different society now where people, I don't think they look at collectivist achievement so much. No. They don't look at um, when, when we landed on the moon, Americans felt like, well, that's all of us up there. We did that. And even if you, if you went to Yugoslavia, if you went to Africa, if you went anywhere else, they would look up there and they would say the same thing. We, the earth, we went to the moon. So the sacrifice you made in terms of uh, money and human beings, it just seemed like it was something worth doing. But now that sentiment isn't isn't so easy to find because we have enough problems right here that people could say, why not spend a billion on this or a billion on that? A book came out last year about the, the Apollo program called Rocket Men right. by Craig Nelson. And he calculated that you could take if you took the entire cost of going to the moon, and that means nine years of, of uh, the launches previous to actually getting there and all the experimentation, all the equipment, and you adjust it for inflation, the money spent for that entire program, you spend every 540 days in Iraq. Jeez. Now, that's a strange thing to think. Man's capping achievement, the technological kingpin of everything we've ever done, and we burn off that amount of money in just over a year on, on a war. Right. So if it, it really begs the question, if we could avoid that sort of conflict, if we could somehow uh, aim ourselves in another direction, certainly we could get there. The, the money is there. It's just, is there the will? If, if they found a, uh, a mineral on the moon um, that, that we could use as fuel, you know we would be there. Well, there, You and I would be miners. We'd be working on the moon. Well, and that's uh, interesting, too, because there's talk of, I think something called helium three on the moon. Sure, I've I've heard that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and, and if somebody if somebody finds out that it's uh, like unobtainium in in Avatar, right? Then blue skin or not, we're going. We will be there. And um, I've often thought to myself, well, what if on that first landing they they did dip a pole into the dirt and and they found that there's this amazing substance there? Well. For better or for worse, you would spend some part of your life on the moon, and maybe it wouldn't be so fun. You know, maybe it's manual labor that we would all be doing, trying to to bring back this substance. And instead of going to college and, and getting into whatever career people follow, you know, I'm, I'm a writer, so I can stay clean most of the time. Right. I would. I'd go to the moon, and I'd be doing some pretty pretty dirty work if, if we would have followed that path. So maybe it's not all jetpacks and, and flying cars. Maybe maybe there's a more gritty future that we avoided by not going back. If you saw the movie that was out last year called Moon, you know that uh, that's the basis or uh, one of the storylines in that movie is uh, mining mining the moon. And if you haven't seen it, I won't give it away, but it's quite good. You should, if you haven't seen it, go rent it. It'll, uh, it speaks to that grittier future that, that you I, mentioned. I think Matt Mason, as 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 much as it it showed you this this wonderful future in that technologically we were able to do this thing and, and, and we're able to exist on on a on a base on the moon and and 
evidently were able to go back and forth and make friends with giant guys named Captain Laser, right. which I'm still unable to explain. Um, <laughs> even though that happened, they still had these ancillary products where you would have uh, these gritty tales. Like the, I don't know if you've ever read the, the Whitman Big Little book um, called, I think it was called Moon Mystery. No, on the moon. I've not seen but that. It's a, it's a pretty dark tale. They're, they're living in these tunnels under the moon. They're hearing these noises. It's affecting their brain. They don't like the food they're eating. <laughs> they, they're, they're basically existing in long underwear when they're not wearing their super cool outfits. They've yeah. got these, uh, these long underwear things they wear. So it, it's, it's a little bit dark. And, of course, since it's a, it's a kid's story, no one dies in the thing. But it doesn't seem like uh, a, a altogether pleasant place to be. It's not, in other words, Star Trek. Where right. You go to a planet. And if there is if there is somebody um, some alien life there, um, you might want to date it. Um, but uh, you, there was there was nothing you wanted to date in the Matt Mason um, universe. Which brings us to the Captain Laser um, thing, the, the giant Captain Laser plastic action figure, friend of Major Matt Mason. Now a I, friend from another planet. Now I never experienced Captain Laser. I don't know why, because I had two Matt Masons. I had a Moon base. I had the uh, crawler, the vehicle, but I never experienced laser. And I never understood because what I read in your article and have seen in other places was that this toy was really invented to compete with G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe evolved into all kinds of stuff. He's a fireman. He's a frogman. He has his own movie now. G.I. Joe is still very, very popular, whereas Matt Mason, as you mentioned in your conspiracy article, he just goes away overnight. <laughs> I, I don't understand why the toy didn't evolve and why the guys at Mattel just woke up one day and said, you know what, we're done. We're done with uh, exploring space and Major Matt Mason. I think if you look at how the, if you look at how the toy evolved... When it came out, there was a good maybe year, year and a half where it was human beings in technology, whether it's suits or, or the, the space vehicles they had, exploring outer space. It right. was very practical. But it didn't take long for them to decide, well, we've got to expand from this. And that's when Captain Laser comes in. And Captain Laser is really just an odd fever dream sort of addition to the whole thing because... First of all, he's not a rubber bendy at all. He's, he's about 14, almost 15 inches tall. He wears a helmet with an antenna on it, sort of almost like a gladiatorial sort of helmet. Right. He has a big backpack, and it's got three buttons on there with, that, makes, that make noises when you push them, and, and these attachments to his um, rigid arms uh, would, would glow. So you'd have a sword and a shield. It had nothing to do whatsoever with this whole I, practical idea of Man into Space, the American Space Program. And I've asked everyone I can find who, who have worked on the program, on the, on the product, whether they were in engineering or promotion, and, and I've told them, look, this is obviously a toy that you found at the, the European Toy Fair, right? And you repurposed it. And they, every one of them says, nope, absolutely not. This was designed and made for Major Matt Mason. Now, I don't know if they're trying to toe the line even... 45 years later, right. or if that's actually the fact. But that that's the way it is. It's a big, giant a guy named Captain Laser suddenly comes into the fold. And that's when 
things got a little strange. Other aliens came in. Uh, there's one called um, Scorpio, another one called Or, and, and they're interesting. They're, they make it fun for a kid. You want to have conflict. you got to have some bad guys out there. Um, but it took it away from the, the realism of the thing. Well, so the, once you get to that point, why not just make it completely strange? And and you get to where we are, where it's it's Star Wars and it's uh, He-Man and things like that with, with no basis in reality at all. Well, I was perfectly content to play with mine with the idea in mind that he's an American guy exploring the moon. And that that did it for me. So uh, And all the other tens of millions of boys who in 1969 started playing with their Matt Mason, that that was what we all were thinking about. It's just too bad that the thing went away, and that the other thing that's too bad about it is that not only did the toy just go away, but with so many other collectibles that we talk about on this show, there's people who are our age, in their 40s and in their early 50s, who are looking for the toys that they played with when they were growing up during during that time, and that's where the clubs start. That's where the conventions start. And you get whole movements around popular culture from the 50s and 60s. And there hasn't been that kind of thing with the Matt Mason toy. And, and I know in your article that you wrote, you, you make mention of that. Let's, let's take that apart a little bit. Why is that? Well, that, I've rolled that around in my mind for a while as well. And, and I think it might just come down to the fact that if a toy has a has a beginning and an ending that were so abrupt, like Matt Mason, right? I think that's what's going to happen. There was no fizzle down. There was no um, uh, introducing. Well, they introduced the aliens, but they didn't expand it any further and and, and get crazy like the Brady Bunch added the, the extra. What was his name? Oliver or something? Oh, sure. And they fizzled out that way. But Matt Mason just <laughs> the, the cover slammed down hard and. Um, the product that followed Matt Mason and used a lot of the molds and the same sort of bendy technology was something called Sea Devils. It was um, scuba divers. Right. And ironically, it's, again, exploring another frontier, using things that are, are practical in real life. You know, act, scuba divers were actual, uh, was actual technology that you could use. It didn't last very long at all. In fact, you could walk up to the average person from who lived through the 60s and they may not have heard of it. Um, so Matt Mason becomes this this sort of footnote, even though it, it the form of the toy was was so unique, being a being a rubber bendy and, and having things like that space bubble where I, I don't know if this was one you had, but you could put your little Matt Mason in a in a chair in the middle, and uh, the dome was its own wheel, yeah. but the chair would remain stationary. Yeah, he had a, a pretty nifty idea. Well, it had a dome, and um, he sat in the chair, and the there were, if I'm remembering it right, there were four sides to it, and you could open them up, and you could reposition him, and there was a, a lighted part to it. There was a beacon that went with it, too. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, I, and as a kid growing up, I never understood what it was for. So, uh, but it was still kind of cool and fun sure. to play with. What do you think? But, the, but because of the fact that it, it slammed down so so quickly, I think. It, it is one of those things where um, if I mention it to, to a certain age group of people, you, you will get that instant recognition. Recognition. Oh, sure, I remember Major Matt Mason. But it isn't, it isn't like G.I. Joe where that's a toy that, uh, that kept going and then it evolved. It got smaller and it became a cartoon on TV and uh, up to the point where um, the movie that just came out has 
no relationship whatsoever to the, the toy I played with as a little kid, the right. 12-inch figure with the, with the real outfits and everything that you could put on. So Matt Mason um, is almost frozen in amber because it came out in a certain way and it went out the same way it came in. Right. So there isn't my Matt Mason or, you, or your Matt Mason in this generation's Matt Mason. It's just one, one, one rubber figure and his, and his friends, Doug Davis and Jeff Long mm-hmm. um, and Sergeant Storm. So you got a good crew of four there. It never really went beyond it. They're just marooned. What do you think the marooned in time? What do you think the odds that Mattel will ever ever uh, reissue Matt Mason? Oh, I, I, I'm 100 percent sure they will. Oh, I will. I swear, I will. I'll be one of those guys up in the middle of the night to go buy that. They, well, there is a uh, there's a movie right now in pre-production. Um, I wrote a, a book got to be about 10 years ago now about the creation of the, the G.I. Joe toy and um, how Hasbro uh, built their company and everything based on that on that toy. And when I was interviewing different celebrities about their memories of toys, um, somebody uh, somebody close to Tom Hanks had said, oh, he yeah, he played with G.I. Joe, but his favorite toy was Major Matt Mason. Oh, cool. And so he's played a, uh, he's played a toy and he's played an astronaut. And now he's going to play a toy astronaut if he has his way. He's um, optioned the major Matt Mason property, and he's working with Mattel. Um, I hear they have a script ready. Uh, that doesn't mean that the movie's ready to be made by any means, but it does mean that money's being spent, and, and the name will reappear. And I have every anticipation that, uh, that we'll see, like we've seen a lot of toys from the 50s and 60s and 70s, even the 80s, come back. Why not Major Matt Mason? I'm convinced now hearing this that life is going to get better <laughs> just because of that, because of no other reason. And, John, you're a writer. Tell us where we can see some of the things that you've written. Well, I have a—it's an old website now that, that I've looked at. It. Some of those dates are old, but it's fullyarticulated.com. And um, some, of the, uh, some of the older stories, including the, the uh, Matt Mason stories, are on there. And um, right now I'm actually working on a, on a book about Major Matt Mason and the American fascination and then uh, end of our fascination with space. And uh, hopefully Tom Hanks makes the movie and um, I, can, I can ride on some of that popularity. That would <laughs> be great. have a movie. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't. And um, regardless, when your book comes out, let me know and I'd love to have you back to, uh, to talk about that. Will do, will do. John Micklig conspiracy theorist, author, and expert on Major Matt Mason. Thank you for being with us this week on The Collector's Show. Thanks to everyone for tuning in to Web Talk Radio. More coming up next. I'm Harold Nichol.